0: Welcome to On Opinion, the Palia Podcast. I'm Turi Bunti. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarisation. Everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, I'll talk to experts across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue, and what that means for society. We are thrilled to be talking to Hector Garcia, who joins us from the US today. Hector is professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Texas, and a clinical psychologist working with veterans. He's the author of Sex, Power, and Partisanship, which you'll find a link to in our author notes. And the book which forms the basis of our conversation today. Hector, thank you so much for joining us.
1: It's delighted to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So Hector, your approach to um, understanding the world around us, from the politics of the world around us, the opinions that we make is an evolutionary one. Can I ask you just as a starting point, what is this field called evolutionary psychology uh, and how can it help us?
1: Evolutionary psychology... um... I guess, a broad and sweeping definition is just the study of how our um, opinions, how our likes, how our dislikes, how our passions, um, how our religions, how our politics are rooted in our evolutionary history. Um, And, you know, we evolved in these small groups of hunter-gatherers living um, very different lifestyles than the ones in which we, most of us currently live, uh, for for most of our our evolution, for most of our history as a species. And uh, our brains are adapted for those environments. The modernized, industrialized world that we live in today is is just a a most minute fraction of our history. So um, we carry forward a lot of the adaptations that we evolved for our ancestral environments into the modern day. And uh, so what I think it can help us answer is uh, a lot of the a lot of the human behaviors that are perplexing that seem irrational to us like 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 politics for example
0: Um, (laughs) lots of the most the behavior which seems to us the most irrational can can be explained in part by evolutionary psychology is that right i think
1: i think it offers uh, explanations that have not only not only incredible explanatory power, but they're so parsimonious They make sense. And so, oftentimes, when you're toiling to understand something like like a political stance or a religious behavior, um, the evolutionary explanations, you have these aha moments. Like, yes, of course. How come I didn't see this earlier? And um, I think one of the reasons for that is like most of our instincts, you know, we're not aware of them. They they operate underneath the radar of our conscious awareness, what uh, evolutionary psychologists have called instinct blindness. So getting sighted to, to our instincts, that's, that's I, think, uh, I, think, I think it's an invaluable uh, process. I,
0: I love that um, instinct blindness. Um, it's sort of the, on the premise that if we don't know why we feel a certain way, we flail about and have no signal for action as a result of it. We're slave to our feelings. Uh, We act
1: upon our impulses without thinking, right?
0: Yeah, without without direction understood, yes. You have this nice phrase, you say, um, instinct blindness sets up barriers to rationally examining our choices, barriers which can turn a functioning society against itself. Is is that prompted by politics today as a comment?
1: Well, uh, the current book was, (laughs) certainly, was prompted by politics today. You know, I, I wrote this book, you know, um, right after I started writing, you know, right after the 2016 election, as I saw, you know, the fabric of uh, society in the US start to unravel. And so that was kind of the impetus.
0: That makes sense. We'll come on to um, the application of evolutionary psychology to today's politics in the US and elsewhere in a minute. Um, but want I want to front load... The fact that evolutionary psychology has, in certain circles, got a bad name. It's considered essentialist. It's considered to be, I think somebody, some, some people describe it as just a series of just-so stories, like how the whale got its hump or how the crocodile got its teeth or whatever it is. They're these kind of gestures into the, into the past which are difficult to test out. Can we address this issue of the validity of evolution, evolutionary psychology head-on?
1: Well, sure. I mean, a lot of that, especially in the U.S., a lot of that opposition comes from, you know, religious fundamentalists whose ideas of creation so strongly, you know, um, clash against.
0: uh, If you don't agree with evolution, evolutionary psychology is never going to fly. That makes sense. uh,
1: And and that may sound kind more foreign to somebody in the U.K., but believe it or not, it's 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 still... A giant debate in the U.S. absurdly, in my in my opinion, but but yeah, so there there are there is such a thing as just so stories because it sounds logical. You know, somebody might say, well, it's just evolutionary. But the idea is to back it up with uh, with with the data to look at the empirical literature to conduct um, research for your hypotheses and and there are uh, many testable theories in evolutionary psychology, falsifiable theories.
0: You talk specifically about a sort of a dual misreading of, of evolutionary psychology, the moralistic fallacy and the naturalistic fallacy. They seem to cover both bases super well. Can you help us understand those?
1: Absolutely. So, so there are definitely some logical fallacies surrounding uh, evolution. And I think what's interesting to me is that they tend to, um, they tend to get expressed differently depending on your political orientation. So um, one misread or one one fallacy, one cognitive error would be that, for example, on the left, we might hear something like, well, gender inequality is undesirable. Therefore, there can't possibly be differences between the sexes. And on the right, you might hear, well, there are differences between the sexes. So that justifies uh, gender inequality. We have our biases. They're based on Uh, Our evolutionary psychology and the strategies we employ for for our evolutionary fitness That's one of the things I write about in the book.
0: That makes sense I like the fact that you turn it that in fact the moralistic fallacy and the naturalistic fallacy can both be explained by (laughs) evolutionary psychology Uh, That feels like a win for evo psych Um, Mm -hmm. Okay, jumping in straight into our politics Help me understand how evolution explains our politics.
1: Well, one of the biggest questions I sought to answer was where partisanship comes from, where political partisanship comes from. Because, I mean, as the whole world has been watching, our, our, our evolutionary, well, our, our political orientations, our political behavior can, can be irrational. It can be so heated. It can be so fuming. I mean, it will send people who were otherwise um, countrymen getting along fairly well to fighting each other in the streets. And, and oftentimes that, that division happens across partisan lines. So my endeavor was to say, to figure out, okay, what, what, is, what is political partnership? Where does it come from? So there, there are many ways to answer that question. Um, political parties themselves, you know, they can shift and realign. Uh, but they shift and realign atop a base of psychological processes that are, are far more more stable. And personality correlates, uh, reproductive strategies. And what I have focused on most is the evolutionary pressures that help shape our political orientations. And the ones I focus on the most are, are the pressures of, of germs in our evolutionary past, the pressures of outside tribes, uh, hostile outside tribes, and uh, of rearing human offspring into into maturity, which is a, a monumentous evolutionary task, um, given how much time human infants spend in uh, dependency. So those are the those are the uh, the main domains that I cover.
0: So I wonder whether uh, a nice place to start is to ask if you can help us understand the evolutionary basis of both variants. Let's start with conservatism. What are what's the evolutionary explanation for our conservatism?
1: So and this gets into um, the pressures of, of germs in outside tribes. So for example, we all have traits that fall along the natural curve, right? And, and the natural the,
0: political curve?
1: The bell curve. Yeah. And and some of that is is our political orientations. So but but before we even go there, let's look at the tendency to fear outside people. Um, if you can imagine the, the natural curve on one end, you have, it's, a, it's a, like a small wing. So some people fear outsiders very, very strongly. They're suspicious of people who are not from their group. Most of us fall somewhere in the middle and there are people who are highly attracted to outside people, um, which we would call xenophilia. So on one end, xenophobia, on the other end, xenophilia. Um, and the idea is that in our evolutionary past, there were there were benefits and, and drawbacks to to being drawn to outside people, or conversely, being suspicious of outside people. Outside people could be hostile; they could spear you if you walked over the mountain to talk to them. But on the other hand, uh, they may have had uh, goods, technologies, um, mates, you know, um, resources that that could benefit our evolutionary fitness. So the interesting thing, and this is a very robust research finding across the globe, is that when you use uh, where somebody falls on this continuum of xenophobia, xenophilia, it predicts pretty strongly where you fall on in, in terms of political orientation. The more xenophobic you tend to be, the more politically conservative you tend to be and vice versa for xenophilia, uh, and, and political liberalism. So that's, that's one of the ways, um, that our evolutionary, uh, history, uh, explains, uh, can help us explain political partisanship and, and, you know, all the, all the tendencies that we see, uh, therein.
0: So that's, I suppose there's a, there's a germ element, there's an opportunity element, et cetera. But so is the suggestion that we can't be one and the other, we have to be one or the other.
1: And that's a great question. That is a great question. I think, I think people worry that if we start to understand, if we start to give up any, any ground to our, you know, our evolutionary tendencies, our instincts, our genetics, that, that we are beholden to them. But I, I, I would argue just the opposite. The more we understand, the better we are able to make freer choices. and. And, um, you know, it, it, we're not genetic automatons. It's not like if, if you have a tendency to fear outside people, you can't develop a trust for outside people and vice versa. You know, we, we are incredibly adaptable. So when we, when we look at these trends, we have to think probabilistically, right? So in general, there are these tendencies. There's always exceptions. And there's, there's, you know, with, with some limitations, there's, there's, there's room to adapt and to learn and to, and to change.
0: Okay. So on the one hand you've got, so let's, we, we start with germs, uh, opportunities, disadvantages of engaging with, with others. Is that the only key piece? Is it all, is it, is the split between conservatives, conservatism and liberalism as it's understood by evolution only really about openness to new experiences, or is there also... I think there's also, there's perhaps also another element, which is around hierarchy versus equality. There's a difference there as well, isn't there?
1: There certainly is. And since you've mentioned germs, let's just for your listeners, let's go back and describe what we're talking about. So, another um, trait that falls on the natural curve is fear of germs. There's some of us who fear germs very strongly, and some not so much that also predicts where you fall on, on on in terms of political orientation. So the more fearful you are, the more politi- politically conservative you are, um, generally speaking and, and vice versa for people who don't fear germs as much. Um, and it's, it's no surprise that fear of germs and fear of outsiders uh, are correlated because in our ancestral past, the biggest vectors of disease were those outside our tribe who carried pathogens for which we may not have a genetic immunity. And, you know, something as simple as the common cold could wipe out an entire population.
0: Or coronavirus. Um, uh, or so, coronavirus. So, just, so just to repeat that, if conservatives, and it's not just fear of germs, it's fear of lots of things, isn't it? So conservatives tend to be motivated more by fear um, of outsiders, of germs, et cetera. That has served a tremendously valuable um, function throughout our history in Protecting in sort of inhibiting the instinct to run out and greet the foreigner with their spears and their smallpox, um, and therefore protecting those 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 communities. So that's the function of fear, sort of embedded in conservatism, which we see historically through even well said.
1: Psychology. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, yeah. I think you you ex- you explain that, summarize that nicely.
0: What's the correlate on the liberal side, therefore, around? if fear is a determinant of conservatism or heightened fear, what's the, what are, what are heightened, um, tendencies on the liberal side?
1: Um, well, a, a, a psychological trait, another psychological trait is openness to experience. Um, so, um, and, and openness to outsiders, um, you know, humans have, have, um, have emigrated across the whole world. I mean, we've, we've managed to spread across the entire globe. And that being openness to outsiders, being openness to outside experiences, to leaving the natal group to exploring um, that's what's what has driven that, and there are benefits to that as well, you know, um like we talked about, you know, novel genetic material, new environments, new resources so so that's one of them, one of the traits that sort of facilitates that is is uh understanding other people's minds like having a good theory of mind which uh means like understanding other people have thoughts intentions desires which tends to be more pronounced in people on on the liberal end of the spectrum um greater empathy because that is a function of understanding other people's minds and and you can see you know uh, i think a pretty stable um character of liberals is that they tend to perform you know support policies that 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 help the poor the disenfranchised and and that's i think one output of that of that tendency to to be able to mind read to understand other people's thoughts and to have you know compassion for them and that's not in any way to say that people on the conservative end you know can't understand other people's minds or aren't compassionate they are but uh you know, it's a matter of, of degree and, and even though that we share far, 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 far more similarities than we do differences across, across the political spectrum, those, those slivers of difference explain a lot about what divides us and that's why I focus on them.
0: So just briefly, help me understand how um, an advanced theory of mind would help in exploring new things, discovering new land, engaging with new uh, experiences.
1: Well, imagine if, if, I, uh, if you're somebody who's, who's traveling in a small group across, across an unknown landscape and you come, across, you come across a foreign people who speaks a different language, who may have different customs, to be able to understand their, their thoughts, their intentions, to be able to extrapolate from their, from their uh, body gestures and tone of voice you know, to understand other people's minds would facilitate that. And, um, you know, indeed, that's a key, you know, the, one of the things we see in people who are xenophilic is more likely to engage in world travel, more likely to explore other cultures, um, more likely to, to eat food at a, at a ethnic, re- you know, restaurant. Um, um, so, you know, understanding other people's minds would, would h- help, um engaging with with people who, who you don't share, you know, genes or, or language, common language.
0: It's both positive and negative. On the one hand, understanding people's minds helps you empathize with them and therefore renders them human, makes you less frightened of them. But also, well, it's probably also a skill in not getting into very dangerous arguments with them too.
1: Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Watch I would it. say so, so it works
0: positively and negatively, I understand. Okay, so we've talked about... One key difference between liberals and conservatives, which is, I suppose, the fear instinct on the conservative side, the openness to experience on the liberal side, xenophilia versus xenophobia. But there's another key differentiator between conservatives and liberals today, which is on the conservative side, a respect and support for hierarchy and authority. And on the liberal side, much more interest in, I suppose, egalitarianism. What can evolution teach us? about the causes of those cleavages?
1: So yes, that is that, those are definitely great predictors of, of where one would fall on, on the continuum. Um, so there are a couple of uh, kind of foundational instruments used to measure the underlying psychology of, uh, of, our, of our political orientations. And one is called social dominance orientation. And that's the extent to which you wish for your group to be dominant over another group, to have an advantage. And what I find very interesting is that across the globe, across religions, across cultures, across socioeconomic status, it's, it's by far, men score far higher on that. And one of the things that I point out in my book is how our political orientations are based on our reproductive psychology, our reproductive strategies. David Buss, who is an evolutionary psychologist at the University of Texas, has done some fascinating worldwide research that, by this point, may be a truism in all of our minds, but but what he has found was that, um, again, across every culture, men, on average, prefer uh, more, more mates than, than women. Women tend to prefer quality in their mates, um, where men tend to take a quantity strategy. Men are far more willing to engage in casual sex um, and tend to express a preference for more partners. Um, and this is based on just our, our potential reproductive output. So when you think about it, it, it would benefit men far more than it would benefit women to think in, in in egalitarian terms, to want more than their competitors, and so um, you know we see some of these some of these tendencies embedded in just our own physiology. So, for example, men in uh, in in laboratory settings who are administered testosterone, or who have higher endogenous testosterone, tend to share less in laboratory games. They tend to share less. So, men with uh, bigger upper body muscularity with more upper body muscularity tend to share less and that really ties back to a time where we were physically competing for resources on 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 our ancestral savannas so um you know we can we can trace a lot of our political preferences and and stances to these evolutionary struggles to to survive and reproduce that's what i find so fascinating
0: okay so just that's i'm going to stick with this um upper body strength, strong, testosterone-filled male, refusing to share, therefore sort of incentivized against egalitarianism because they're in a dominant position. Is that the conservative bent that you're describing there? That's the
1: conservative bent. That is the conservative masculine bent.
0: Okay. And therefore, what's the, yeah, so what's the counter to that? Where do we get, where do we get liberalism from? Where do we get an attempt to, is it an attempt to constrain that? That's,
1: that is, that is what I, that's the, the idea that I developed, that it's an, an attempt to constrain men from rising up and, and accumulating too much power, to, to, to right power imbalances. And, you know, research across the globe tends to, tends to find that, um, you know, people who are, who come from marginalized social groups, ethnic minorities, religious minorities, women, tend to support more egalitarian party, uh, policies. Um, which also tend to be tend to as- associate with liberal political parties. I one way of framing all this is that we are at our core social animals who live in dominance hierarchies. So our political psychology can help us rise up a dominance hierarchy, prevent from falling too down on a do- on a hi- falling too far down on a dominance hierarchy. Uh, maintaining our position, maintaining the status quo, maintaining our dominance position. So the, where we where we lie on the dominance hierarchy has great implications for our access to resources, whether they be mates or wealth or money or even food.
0: So across this split, which is the commitment to hierarchy on the conservative side and commitment to equality on the more liberal side, we're seeing two survival strategies at play for those strong males in who could potentially achieve top of the hierarchy status that's the conservative line they are primed to want that and the liberal strategy is the strategy of those who would find it harder to get to the top of that of that uh, of that dominance hierarchy and therefore what club together to reduce the power or to or to dampen the power of those alpha males
1: absolutely absolutely that's the idea
0: so what's happening here Hector is that you're gendering politics too, that on one level you have conservatism as male and liberalism as more female, with all the provisos around the essentialization of gender, which I think neither of us are interested in. You've done research linked to Simon Baron Cohen's research on autism, which suggests that actually there is scientific justification for seeing conservatism as essentially maleness. Is that right?
1: Yes, and that was a very tricky thing for me to say. Those that, that was kind of dangerous terrain because I I don't I didn't mean to imply so Simon Baron-Cohen has done research on autism and and studying the uh, you know the essential male brain. He he argued that you know people who suffer from autism have an extreme form of the male brain, tend to be really good at at things like engineering and math, um, rotating objects in three dimensional space in their mind but tend to have poorer theory of mind, which we talked about earlier, poor language skills. So it it is also a disorder that is predominantly male. So across so many of the indices that is outlined by Baron Cohen and his developmental research, liberals and conservatives and men and women reliably differ on. So Liberal men and wo- and women tend to have better language skills. Liberal men and women uh, tend to have better theory of mind, tend to empathize more. There's all these all these clues about uh, our gendered psychology that we can extrapolate from from the research literature, such as that, and then the the effort of evolutionary psychologists to map map those clues onto you know, a coherent idea of how how we got there, a hypothesis to be tested.
0: So we've spoken quite a lot about these, the theories of evolutionary psychology as they apply to our politics today. But let's go jump into a hard story. Donald Trump is a political phenomenon. I want you, would like you, please, to explain the political phenomenon, the manifestation of Donald J. Trump as if, without meaning any disrespect, he was a chimpanzee. <laughs>
1: Okay, fair question. So I think to understand that we have to understand the pressures of our evolutionary past. It may be hard to imagine those fully from the seat of comfort that we have created for ourselves in the modernized world, but our ancestral past was very dangerous. For one, swarming with predators, swarming with predators that could take us out very easily. Swarming with outside tribes, and you know there's a lot of research showing that um intertribal warfare was was uh, far, far, far more common than than it is today. We were often um, uh, conducting raids on one another, killing all the men, taking the women as their prizes of war was was a common practice among among tribes. so in that environment, it paid to ally oneself with big allies, right. The big strong man who's going to protect you, who's going to protect you against outsiders. Whether we talk in terms of proto-humans, chimpanzees, or even, you know, just just modern humans living in, in, a, in a very dangerous world, there's a draw to to big testosterone-filled strong men. And so we can we can see that draw that draw um, when we do research on preferences in our political leaders. So one study, for example looked at um, over 200 years of of presidential elections in the U.S. and found that in the vast majority of cases, the taller of the two candidates won the election. And in every case, both candidates were taller than the average uh, U.S. male citizen. So um, why is that? Why, Why would that matter? You know, today, there's no possible way that our elected leaders would represent us in an actual physical fight. But it, it, it's no surprise, it, sh, it should be no surprise then how leaders talk about their role and their ability to protect us you know, when, when, uh, during a, a political campaign. So Donald Trump, for example, often talked about how big he was relative to his political opponents.
0: Little Marco Rubio, yeah, Sleepy Joe. Little Marco is, is that- Rubio.
1: He called, uh, he called Jeb Bush weak and uh, Ted Cruz a pussy. Um, little Rocket Man, it was so incredibly primitive. And but he often talked about him himself and how how big he was. You know, he's big at this. He's big at that.
0: He um, has the biggest crowds. He has the biggest all sorts of things.
1: So I I think remember Ben Carson. He was he was running uh, for president. The, yeah, twenty sixteen. Uh, right. Ben Carson, for example, talked about how in the past he he used to go after people with uh, uh, bats and bricks and rocks and stuff. Which, when his schoolmates were interviewed, nobody seemed to remember that. But not hiding something like that, but intentionally broadcasting how violent you were in your in your past. I mean, this is uh, very primitive. It's a very it's a very primitive uh, appeal that Donald Trump has, and and
0: you, you know the loud,
1: be- brash, chest thumping leader.
0: Um, he's activating a kind of primeval trigger in his supporters, which is deeply inciting, deeply exciting, and also explains why he is so revolting to um, the egalitarians, because he's the very opposite. He's exactly the kind of thing that egalitarian liberals were designed evolutionary to protect against.
1: Absolutely. Keep this in mind. If political conservatism is associated with, with greater fear, not only fear of germs, not only, not only fear of of outsiders but all kinds of fears in fact there's research showing that that highly partisan people on the right tend to have a bigger amygdala and that is kind of the, the fear center of of the brain those tactics those loud brash chest thumping tactics i'm bigger than my opponents that's going to resonate
0: because it's the protection piece i can, protect. Piece.
1: Yeah. I can pre- and 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 he he was also claiming he was going to protect against mexican rapists against isis you know so oftentimes political leaders will will manufacture a threat and offer protection.
0: Just both those examples, right? Protection against rapists talks to perhaps the deepest, one of the very deepest fears of societies, of primitive societies, which is that um, Obviously, from from a woman's perspective, that's clearly obvious. But from a male perspective, also, the idea that that their women would no longer be there for them to reproduce with. So that's talking to a very, very deep primeval fear. And then the wall idea as well, it's keeping the outsider out. That's also talking to a very profound psychological need that we've had since bred, bred into us by evolution
1: large males have always had a role in, in protecting our territory, you know, and in, in protecting against outsiders, helping us to secure resources. Um, Trump's game is just being incredibly concrete about it all. So yes, for example, saying, I'm, I'm literally going to build a wall to keep out the Mexicans, <laughs> the Mexican rapists, the Mexican drug dealers and murderers. I mean, that's, that's, that's exactly how he phrased that. And of course, you take a, a step back and male-mate competition has driven those fears across millennia because, like we mentioned just a moment ago, a very common practice was to raid the neighboring tribe, kill all the men, take their women.
0: Deeply embedded in us. Does Trump's language, his tone, also play at an evolutionary level? Or is that just accidental?
1: I don't know if it's accidental. I don't know if the language he uses is, is just him. It's just his limited vocabulary, or if it's intentional, but it certainly has an appeal. But what do you, what do you mean about his language? You mean like using simple terms, which he often does. I, I
0: want exactly that. Whether yeah, simple terms, the bombast, um, the denigration, the as you described, the quite puerile denigration of opponents. What else qualifies? it? What else is is a feature of his language? Actually, I mean this the simple language does talk to um, something core that you and Simon Baron Cohen have identified which is that linguistic skills tend to be found more on the left than on the right is that right
1: yes that's absolutely I hadn't, I hadn't actually thought of that before but but sure I mean the general populace who, who may not be very politically savvy um you know and he came in promising to be different than 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 the the you know than the political establishment and so by using really common language I think he he appeals to uh, he appeals to um, you know a general sense of mistrust about the political process, but uh, that's I hadn't thought of that. But that's a, that's a good point. It may be that uh, that that speaking in really simple terms, using simpler language, appeals to his base in a way that's uh, that's more about ultimately about our our neurology.
0: That's fascinating. We were just anchoring the manifestation of Trump in a an understanding of how early humans, perhaps even chimpanzees, organize their social groups. There's a lovely parable that you talk to um, in your book about the difference between chimpanzees and bonobos. And as I understand it, chimpanzees are much, much more aggressive, much more male in the terms that you've described it, much more conservative. They are frightened, they are extremely aggressive, they kill um, any outside group that they come across. And bonobos are, on the other hand, much more liberal in that sense much more um much more feminine they engage with in sex for pleasure they are constantly mating outside of of um, fertility cycles they are open to other groups of bonobos it's sort of like if you want if conservatives are from mars and liberals are from venus chimpanzees are from mars bonobos are from venus and all that separates chimpanzees and bonobos is a river the fundamental difference between their habitats is that chimpanzees share their habitat with the very threatening gorilla species. And the the habitat itself is less rich. Whereas on the other side of the river, bonobos are kind of far, far less threatened by external predators and the environment, the habitat in which they live is rich and fertile and provides them with their needs. What this—it's not even a metaphor. What this example sort of points us towards would be to suggest that, as our societies get richer and healthier and uh, safer, societies also become more liberal. Is that right?
1: Well, um, Stephen Pinker certainly makes a, a, a beautiful case for that in um, in in both of his recent books, uh, Better Angels of Our Nature and the Enlightenment uh, uh, Enlightenment Now. But uh, again, we, we still carry over these instincts to compete with one another uh, for scarce resources. I mean, one of the things that we can have come to understand more and more is that scarcity in our evolutionary past has, has driven intergroup conflict. We can look at the strata and and you know tell whether there were droughts during a particular area where there were more massacre sites found or evidence of starvation in, in the, the bashed up skulls and bones that we see in, in massacre sites. Um, that I think prompts um, an important question that I always try to ask, you know, do, to what extent do our instincts continue to serve us in the worlds that we have created for ourselves? Because much of our, how can I put this, much of our, our tendency towards intergroup inegalitarianism, to competing violently with outside groups, to turning inward to the tribe and uh, being hostile towards outsiders, was much of that was driven by, by a savage struggle to survive when we were much, much more at the mercy of nature than we, were, than we are today. When we were using stone tools, when we were following the herds around, uh, migratory patterns could change and we'd be in big trouble. Now, nature is at our mercy and we can feed the world in excess. So how does it still benefit us to be that way? Does it still benefit us to be close to other groups? Um, we're moving towards a, uh, a community of, of nations uh, interfacing on so many levels, whether we want to or not. And we carry this ancient psychology forward. So that's why I think it's so important to understand our evolved psychology.
0: Hector, just reading between the lines, are you suggesting that we well, use this nice term sort of a, the, the idea of an evolutionary mismatch, that we have certain evolutionary hangovers that are no longer applicable to um, to today's society? Are you suggesting that conservatism is somehow an evolutionary mismatch for today's globalized world? Is that is that sort of the gesture that you're making?
1: i don't bl- i don't necessarily think conservatism as a whole, but certain features of conservatism like xenophobia i yes I do think that's that's a mismatch I mean how much bloodshed has our have our xenophobic tendencies led to over the centuries, how much destruction um, fear of germs i mean back when we had no such thing as antibiotics back when we were blind to this microbiologic world around us, um, uh, didn't have vaccines, fearing outsiders was, was healthy. You know. Like you said, it was advantageous. But now we, we, we do have vaccines and antibiotics. We do understand what basic hand washing does. Does it still serve us? I mean, it's an open question, it's a complex question, but so I think it- we need to ask difficult questions
0: yeah you of course we do um what would a conservative say in response to your suggestion that they are an evolutionary hangover that they're sort of the missing link what would the what would the conservative response be to this um well i can tell you what the responses have been <laughs> yes
1: <laughs> that that liberals are naive about the world that the world really, you know that uh the world is far more dangerous that that liberals are just and you know it's it's probably obvious now you know that i'm 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 more uh, left leaning in my political orientations but like so many other scholars but you know probably that liberals are naive they're they're not aware of the dangers of the world they're they're weak and effeminate and that's that's that are some of the criticisms that i've heard
0: so. so so that actually that a conservative would say we still live in a version of the jungle or steppe where we evolved our political tendencies. That would be their argument. We still there and whether it's, you know, ISIS or the Soviet union or China or something else, we need, we need conservatives to lead us against, against external threats. Against those threats.
1: And see, the thing is that powerful moneyed interests will prod these tendencies to get what they want. You know, they understand our evolved psychology. They understand how fear motivates us to do certain things like like our voting behaviors. You know, I'll, I'll give you an example. During the during the the 2018 congressional elections in the US, there was this migrant caravan marching up from South America to the US Mexico border. It was in the news there and spectacularly timed to coincide with the congressional elections. And I not to get too conspiratorial, but I just Usually when people try to cross the border, it's under the darkness of night, under the cover of night. They're trying to sneak across, not this big obvious caravan marching towards border. But either way, whatever the impetus was for that caravan to start, Fox News was all over it. They were covering it and they were saying, these people are coming, they're dangerous. And that right when the 2018 elections uh, happened, coverage just evaporated. But before then they were saying things like, they're bringing disease. These foreigners are bringing disease. The and oldest they're, trope. They're the, the oldest trope. They're bring, they even said I, I saw this one segment where they said they're they're bringing smallpox. Um, and you <laughs> we're know, the
0: ones who brought them smallpox.
1: Right, right. Well, true, uh, that is true. But on the other hand, smallpox has been eradicated since about 1980. So yeah. I mean, <laughs> very um, good point. Um, so so you know that undoubtedly was used to get people to vote in a certain direction. Um, and and often when that happens, it's you know, people vote against their own interests sp- spurred by their fears.
0: Yep. That's no, a no. problem. That is indeed a problem. Okay, so this has been absolutely fascinating, Hector. I want to wrap with a question for you. John Stuart Mill, who is Parlier's hero, who wrote everything before everybody and sort of wrapped it all up. Um, you quote in your book, you say, this is John Stuart Mill in On Liberty, Right a party of order or stability and a party of progress or reform are both necessary elements of a healthy state of political life. So that's one view, which is to, to get, to keep a state, a polity healthy, it requires this tension between the conservative, aggressive, male, less empathic, competitive drive on the one hand, and the, the liberal open to experience more feminine alternative to keep this polity running. There's another example that you give in your book, which is of the Iroquois, I think that's how you pronounce them, a Native American tribe who had one governing system for times of peace, and another governing system for times of war. What's your sense of the ideal way to balance these opposing pulls in our nature?
1: Well, that's a great question. The simple version of my answer to that question is that i I don't think we can do away completely with those who who have martial tendencies you know because we we haven't done away with that in humanity there 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 are outside threats you know do we dispense with militaries altogether? I think not you know I think that has to be an element of society I think competition. Um, drives growth and, and free market enterprises. You know, I think that's important. But how much do we give the acquisitive, uh, aggressive males who uh, kind of are operating by an evolutionary-driven winner-take-all philosophy, how much do we give them control? Or do You know, how much do we have them in the foreground? Um, I think if we give them unfettered control, that causes problems, you know? And so, so do we holster them? So the Iroquois, what they did is they, they would have different um, different leaders for peacetime and for wartime. And in wartime, the the wartime leaders would, would have more control, but then they would be pulled back. And the peacetime leaders who were often elected by women, they were given control. And I I think there's an important lesson to learn there. You know, we need to achieve balance and ultimately societies just, can't survive divided you know we've seen over and over what happens when societies divide along along political lines along the lines of our our uh the psychology of our political orientations. so we have to find some way to interface that's that's healthy
0: we thought the answer was democracy i wonder whether there are that that itself is being contested
1: i think democracy is 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 the answer but it's it's uh It's an experiment that often needs um, tuning and we're learning as we go along.
0: We are indeed. Hector, this has been fascinating, um, deeply instructional um, and um, and at times terrifying, which is exactly what a (laughs) podcast should be. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: My pleasure. Thanks
0: for having me. That was On Opinion. The Palia Podcast. Check out our show notes if you'd like to dig deeper into this episode's theme, and join me at palia.com to explore all the world's opinions. To stay up to date with new episodes or get further insights from our guests, subscribe to On Opinion, the Palia Podcast, wherever you listen, and follow us on social media at AskPalia. All our links are in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave us a review. Thank you for listening.